You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. American's innovation system has brought countless products from lab to market, including life-saving mRNA vaccines, the Google search algorithm, and Honeycrisp apples. However, recently, the same intellectual property system has come under attack from both international and domestic sources. Joining us on the air today to talk about this issue is Joe Allen, the executive director of the Baidu Coalition. Joe is a 30-year veteran of national efforts to foster public-private sector commercialization partnerships and author of numerous articles on technology management for national publications. Joe served as a professional staff member on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee with former Senator Birch Bayh, Democrat from Indiana, and was instrumental in working behind the scenes to ensure passage of the historic Bayh-Dole Act, which allows universities that receive federal funding to pursue ownership of their inventions. Welcome to the air, Joe. I'm so excited to see you again and have you on the podcast today. I always enjoy talking to you, Lisa, and I appreciate being invited back. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, likewise, you know, you and I um, keep talking about these issues and, um, you know, it's always great to, to have a meaningful discussion with you. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. You know, we're going to talk about um, Bayh-Dole and the margin provision and uh, in the U.S., some lawmakers and patent critics are encouraging the Biden administration to misuse this policy as a de facto price control for prescription drugs, distorting the law's original goal. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think you said it very well. I mean, it actually does completely distort the, the law's original goal. And uh, that's one reason why uh, we keep fighting this battle over and over again. But so far, we keep winning because I think when people actually look at the, what the statute actually says, as to what people says it says, um, it's really clear is not used for price control. Uh, the purpose of Bayh-Dole really was to encourage the commercialization of federally funded inventions. And the reason that we have margin rights, which we can talk about a little bit later, is in those circumstances when it looks like somebody's not making a good faith effort to commercialize it, then the government can march in, or if you can't meet the needs of an emergency. But there's nothing in the statute or the legislative history saying that if you do commercialize a product, the government can come back and second guess your pricing. Um, so that's really what the whole fight is about. And uh, it's too bad we keep on going around and around this rosemary bush, but apparently the critics want to keep on trying, even though they keep getting knocked down. And I guess we just have to keep explaining uh, why they're off on a mission that really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it really is interesting how we keep going round and round and round on this topic. And can you just talk a little bit about how this misuse goes against the original intent of the march in provision? Sure. Um, basically, without going, well, actually, we'll go back to World War II and we'll start from there, but we'll go quickly. Um, basically, after World War II, the government had a policy that if it funded any research, if somebody made an invention, even with a small percentage of government funding, the government would take it away and put it in the public domain, which is exactly where the critics want to go back. That's their thought is if the public funds something, Everyone should have it for free. Sounds like a laudable idea. But the problem is it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is 
the government's not funding development. It's funding initial research or it's funding government missions, neither one of which has anything to do with commercializing a product. So what happens is if somebody wants to pick up a government invention, they're going to have to take a huge amount of risk and a huge amount of time with the odds highly stacked against them that they're not going to succeed to turn it into a product. And so what we found was when I was on Senator Bayh's staff uh, in the late 1970s, this policy had been in place for almost 40 years, and we found that virtually nothing was being commercialized, including not a single drug had been developed from NIH funding when the government took the invention away. Now, think, think about that for a second. Billions and billions of dollars, not that they're not doing good research, not that the people at NIH or the universities don't know what they're doing, but we completely destroyed the incentives. So Senator Bayh and Senator Dole, who were on completely different sides of the aisle in an environment very much like we have today, so we don't agree on very much, but we agree that we can't waste hundreds of billions of dollars and not get a, a commercial return. So the Bayh-Dole Act changed the whole policy. It said, okay, we're going to decentralize management of inventions from Washington bureaucracy to the people that make the invention, uh, particularly small companies and universities. We said they have the right to own the, invent own the inventions they make. The government can use them for its purposes, which is generally additional research or mission, but the government's not going to have to pay a royalty if they use them. But then the university or the, or, uh, the small company can then license them to have it developed. And Bayh-Dole says that you have to give a preference in licensing to a small company and you have to give a preference for those that make the invention in the United States. We we're way ahead of our time as far as trying to get domestic manufacturing. Uh, universities have to share royalties with their inventors, and they have to use any remaining royalties they get from a successful commercialization to pay their costs, their tech transfer costs, which, again, are not paid by the government. A lot of people don't realize this. Bidol is not a free ride. The university pays for their own patenting costs, not the government, and also, also to reward inventors and to fund more research. So that was how the law worked. But also, remember in 1980, because the previous policy said the government was going to take inventions away, very few universities had a tech transfer office because there was really no reason for a tech transfer office because you weren't going to get much technology to transfer except for a few, few universities. So the reason we have margin rights is twofold. I mentioned before that the purpose of Bayh-Dole is to make sure that good faith efforts are being made to commercialize a, pro a product as quickly as possible. Now, sometimes that can't be done, but at least to make sure people are actually trying to do it. Uh, there was a concern in Congress that what, what's going to happen if we have a dominant big company that has a product on the market that's, make, that's basically carrying their company, and all of a sudden they get the word that a university has an invention that actually may antiquate their product. So we, we were concerned that they don't, we don't want them licensing that invention from the university for the specific purpose of suppressing it. Uh, the other thing was, um, the Congress also was concerned that universities were new at licensing. So we didn't want them putting crazy terms in the, in the license agreement, like you got to pay, you got to hire the president's daughter, or you have to, you have to hire our marching band, or, you know, it, just crazy, or have huge amounts of royalties up front. So in marching rights, we said the first marching trigger, which is where the, all the controversy is, was said the government can march in. Now, when marching rights, what that means is if one of these triggers is hit, the government can go to the university and say, okay, we want you to issue a new license. Well, actually, they have, have, to, have to have a hearing to make sure that it actually hit the trigger. But let's suppose you went to the hearing, and in fact, it's turned out that, that the licensee is really not trying to commercialize the technology. So the government can say, okay, university, you, we want you to license another person. If the university refuses, the government can do that themselves. That's what margin rights means. 
It's, it's, it's like a fail safe. It means the system's melting down. It's not something you want to happen often, but in worst case scenarios, like somebody sitting on an invention, or if the university, or, or, or maybe, the, maybe they've licensed it at a term that's not reasonable. So they're stopping commercialization because you've got some killer clause in there, which, which is stopping people from doing it. Then the government could march in. But that's the purpose, to make sure you're getting things commercialized. The other three triggers, which I'll go through real quickly, which are not the bone of contention, but just so you know, the other trigger is, okay, suppose you have licenses it, licensed it and Lisa's company can't make enough product to meet a pandemic, all right? So the government can say, okay, Lisa, you've commercialized it, God bless you, but you know, you can't make enough, you can't make enough vaccines to meet a pandemic, so we're going to march in and license other people. Or suppose the same scenario, you can't meet the needs of a government regulation. Suppose that there's something we have to have some sort of smokestack emission. You've got the technology, but you can't make more than three a year. All right. In that case, the government could say we're going to march in and license other people. The other trigger is suppose you said you got the preference for domestic manufacturing. You said you're going to make it in Iowa and you're making it in China. And somebody finds out. In that case, the government could march in. So that's how march in rights work. Those, those are the only four circumstances. So back to the first trigger about practical application. Bidol defines practical application, among other things, as saying that the product is available to the public on reasonable terms. And 20 years after Bidol passed, remember Bidol passed in, in 1980, around 2000, a law review article comes out by people who were critics of Bidol, critics of the patent system. They seize on that phrase on, on a reasonable term. Now, that And what they said is, okay, a reasonable term means a reasonable price. And I can understand how, you know, if you, if you didn't know the statute, you didn't look at the legislative history, you could, you could come to that conclusion. But Senator Bayan, Senator Gold, and all of us involved in the, in the statute have explained that, that that's not how the statute works, because the first trigger only applies to the patent owner. The other three triggers apply to the patent owner and the licensee. The licensee is the company making the technology. So you're thinking, well, why does the first one just apply to the university? Because when we talk about reasonable terms, we're referring to the terms of a licensing agreement, not the terms of a sale. A university has no input over what the terms of the sale are. So that's the reason why when every administration has looked at the subsequent petitions for marching in on price control, Republican administrations, Democratic administrations, most were dismissed under the Obama-Biden administration. They looked at the statute. They looked at, at, at the history and they said, oh, wait, wait, it's clear that the, the law does not apply to prices. It applies to the terms of the licensing agreement. And that's really why we keep going around and around this rosemary bush, because they keep filing the same petition. In fact, the standing petition, which is pending right now, is 0 for 3. It was dismissed three times in the Obama-Biden administration. So what happened was when President Biden was, re was elected, the same critics, the same people who went back. 20 years when fighting the same fight, filed the same petition again. Uh, they filed it at NIH and the, and the Department of the Army. The Department of the Army actually co-funded Extandi. So that's where we are right now. We're waiting again to have this, you know, this whole thing decided. Again, I can understand why, if you didn't know anything about it, you could honestly look at that language and say, hey, wait, reasonable terms must be broader than that. But again, that's why you have to look at the statute and the legislative history and it's clear if you look at that, that Bidol means let's commercialize it. Let's make sure it's licensed on terms that are reasonable. It does not mean that if you do succeed, the government can come back and define a price because 
there's nothing in the statute on what a reasonable price actually is. So we can talk about that a little bit later. But if you ever did that, it would turn Baidu on its head. Rather than being a decentralized for the people that own the technology, it would have Washington micromanaging everything. I mean, the government would, has never had that kind of power before. So it would be it would be like putting a bureaucracy on steroids as opposed to our intent was get, a, get them out of the way of commercialization. Well, Joe, I think we have a really recent example of just how well Baidol works in the recent COVID-19 pandemic. The original basic technology for the mRNA vaccines that eventually Moderna and others commercialized came out of Penn. And thankfully, this basic research had been done years in advance and Moderna was able to commercialize the vaccine and we didn't need to exercise any margin right provisions. And the biotech and pharma companies worked really well with one another to try and maximize production. So I think this was really a perfect example of just how well Baidol can and does, in fact, work. You know, it actually is a perfect example because um, if you actually look at that, it, it really shows you how commercialization actually works. Because mRNA, which is the basis of the Moderna vaccine, was invented, I think, in the at least 20 years ago. And it came out of the University of Wisconsin. It was first used for animal care. There was, a, and I'm, I'm sure I don't know her name, which I really should, because the lady at the University of Pennsylvania is a real heroine. Yeah, she really is. She stuck with things, even though she was turned down multiple times. Exactly. She picked up mRNA and said, I think it'd be used for humans. But she worked on that for 10 years. And she was actually downgraded at the university because she couldn't get any grants because people said this is so off the wall. But she didn't give up. And so what happened was, uh, luckily, she was in touch with one of her, her colleagues um, at Boston University, I believe. And they were just talking. And he came up with an idea how it could actually could be made apply, applicable to human, to human care. OK, so that was the stage where Moderna and other people licensed it. Moderna licensed it. And Moderna spent 10 years making no money trying to perfect how mRNA would work. And they couldn't, they were trying to do it for cancer drugs and they couldn't get it to work. What happened was when we had Operation Warp Speed, and remember, people seem to have forgotten this already. It was only like a couple of years ago. We had a thing, a thing called the COVID-19 pandemic and there was, no, there was no therapies for it. We didn't have anything that would work for it. It pretty much shut down the world economy. I'm sorry, people have forgotten that so fast, but that was, you know, just look it up if you don't believe me. So what happened was the government called in people that had things on the shelf that they hope may work. Moderna looked at their mRNA and said, hey, maybe it can work for vaccine production. A lot of, in fact, John Soderstrom from used to be at Yale was on a podcast the Baidol Coalition did two weeks ago. He said the person that was actually running Operation Warp Speed was one of the leading vaccine developers in the world. And he didn't think mRNA was going to work for, for COVID vaccine. But what happened was because we had decentralized technology management and we let people take the risk. And remember, Moderna's made no money for 10 years on this. And the poor woman at the University of Pennsylvania has been working on it for 20 years and it's never, it's never actually been successfully used. Well, they figured out a way to make it work. And you know, we, we developed a vaccine in months as opposed to years. It's still the leading vaccine in the world. Uh, if you don't believe me, look at everybody else who's trying to steal our vaccine technology. So not trying to steal China's and Russia's, they're trying to steal ours. And that's exactly how our system works, because if it was not for the, the researchers at the universities who spent a decade getting turned down and downgraded on campus because she really thought she had something. And Moderna, who was making no money on this, but still thought it was so intriguing, they just wouldn't give it up. Uh, it just all came together serendipitously. But um, 
that's really how we got our vaccines there. And again, the Bayh-Dole Act does not guarantee success. What it guarantees is that if you take a risk, you can protect that through a, a, a license. And again, it's, you know, licenses are limited. They don't last forever. But it's that risk taking that makes our economy work. And that's what's so dangerous about messing with Bayh-Dole, because if you undo that risk, it's already high risk. I mean, not many companies are going to spend 10 years without making income. Not many researchers are going to go 10 years being turned down, but some will. And those are the people that drive our economy. And if you ever discourage those people even more um, and make it even harder, because uh, China is trying to pass us now in life sciences, they're stealing everything they possibly can. We're actually giving stuff away. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, too. We actually are giving our MRA, mRNA vaccine away. We've already done it. And now we're looking to give away even more of our COVID technologies. Uh, yeah, this is an unforced error. We're, you know, we're, we're agreeing to this. This is not something being forced to do by our adversaries. We're agreeing to this. So, um, you know, you can only, you can only uh, put so many spokes in your wheel before the wheels stop turning. But um, I think you're exactly right. The, the, what happened with COVID and Operation Warp Speed is, is the reason why we are the most innovative country in the world, bar none. So, Joe, I wanted to ask you a theoretical question. What if the margin provision was used for price controls. What would the consequences be if that were to occur? Well, I think it was, it's no exaggeration to say it would be catastrophic because what it would do in one blow was completely destroy companies' uh, confidence that the government can be a reliable research partner. And it, it took us a long time to build that confidence up. Even after Baidol passed, we still had companies that were very reluctant to work with universities or federal laboratories for the simple reason that before Baidol, if they were stupid enough to put money into research at a university or federal lab, if an invention was made, it's going to be taken away from them and made available to their rivals. So even after Baidol passed, it really took us a number of years until after the Chakrabarty decision, after we set up the Court of Appeals to the Federal Circuit in 1982. And, and once Stanford and University of California started licensing the basic biotech process, uh, what happened was... Um, Large companies turned it down because it was high risk and, and kind of theoretical. So universities started spinning off companies like Genentech. And if you look at the U.S. biotech industry, it's still characterized by small companies taking a huge risk. And that's really what opened the doors up to university industry collaboration. Now, the problem with misusing margin rights for price control is that's not just limited to drugs because Bidol applies to all federal agencies. It's a uniform policy. So once it's misused on one technology, it's open to be misused on other technologies. And the Baidol Coalition just had a webinar, I guess, about two months ago with four uh, small business entrepreneurs in energy technologies. And they all said, listen, if you ever did this, we would never have licensed a, a university technology because we couldn't protect our investment. Uh, we had a venture funder that said, if margins are ever misused, we're out of here. Well, we'll we got other things we can fund. No one would ever do this again because you couldn't protect your investment for the simple reason that anybody could say, we don't like your price, and then ask the government to license somebody else. So uh, and on one fell swoop, it actually would destroy our system. And the irony is going to be, it's much more likely to destroy innovation than it is to lower prices anyway. So it, it would be a very bad thing to do. So Joe, you know, in thinking about it, I'm not aware of any case law that either directly or indirectly allows for marching under Bidol uh, based on lowering prescription drug costs. Are you aware of any? Well, there's no case law because there's never been a marching petition for price uh, ever been done. So, you know, what's happened is uh, these have been filed for 
about 20 years. Uh, they, everyone has been dismissed under, like I mentioned before, Republican and Democratic administrations is not complying with the law. So what people need to understand is if the government did decide to march in, that starts a long, complex process. Um, first of all, the company has the right or the university has the right to appeal it. And so you would actually have an appeal to the secretary. In this case, it would be the secretary of health and human services. If you return down there, then you can go to federal court. So if people think that, that, that marching in on, 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 on drugs is going to be a simple panacea, you start a long, complicated process. And I think uh, it's very likely that the courts are going, to, are, are going to toss it out because you've got 20 years of precedent for the same agency saying that that's not how marching rights are used. You've got a clear history of Senator Bayh and Dole, and I was Senator Bayh's staff person. I wrote the legislative history. I wrote the committee report. And all of us would say that's not how the law works. So uh, I think it, it would be unlikely the courts would uphold it. But having said that, you would destroy confidence because once the government showed it was capable of doing that, I don't think companies would trust them again. This is, this, again, this is a high stakes game. The odds are huge that you're going to lose your money as opposed to make a lot of money. And I think what would happen is people would say, no, thank you. I just can't trust you anymore. Absolutely. And Joe, I wanted to ask you, you know, U.S. lawmakers are also advocating for the use of Section 1498 of Title 28 of the U.S. Code as a price control mechanism. And for people who may not be familiar with this section of the code, what this states is that whenever an invention described and covered in a patent of the U.S. is used or manufactured by or for the government, without license of the owner or unlawful right to use and manufacture the same, the patent owner's remedy shall be by action in a U.S. court of federal claims for the recovery of a reasonable and entire compensation for use and manufacture. So, Joe, is the attempted misuse of the Bayh-Dole margin rights linked to this proposed abuse of Section 1498? Well, actually, it is, because the same people that are pressing... Uh, there actually was a letter to uh, President Biden from 100 progressives, uh, people like Elizabeth Warren and Lloyd Doggett on the House side, urging him to either march in or use Section 1498. And, and frankly, I was really not familiar with 1498. It was sort of described to me as like eminent domain. So we just had a webinar I mentioned a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And so we asked a retired judge, Susan Brayton, who was actually the, the chief judge of the Court of Claims about 1498. And, and what she explained to us was that 1498 came out of World War II. That basically you had, as people may know, if you, if you ever study any history, we had a huge industrial ramp up to fight and win the war. And so what happened was some government contractors were concerned that inadvertently in their speed to make you know, munitions and automobiles or whatever, they had planes, they had to make everything, medicines. They said they were concerned that they might be inadvertently infringing patents and they would be liable. So Congress passed Section 1498, and rather than being eminent domain, it was actually set up to protect patent owners and actually contractors. And what it says is, according to Judge Braden, in which I think she knows what she's talking about, Congress said, okay, if the government authorizes you to use it for government purposes, like a war, and you inadvertently uh, infringe on somebody's patent, the patent owner can, can sue the government for full price recovery. In other words, it's protect the patent owner to make sure we're not just taking your stuff away and, and you're not going to get compensation, but also to make sure, again, if you have a limited emergency or a need like, the, like that, the government could let their contractors use it. And Judge Braden explained there is case law, and this is opposed to Bayh-Dole, 
where courts have said it's a strictly limited authority. So it's really limited to those extraordinary government purposes. Not just It's not just that if somebody wants to take an invention away, they can use 1498 and have the government just take it. The other, the other thing, which people glance over is, just compensation is not cheap. I mean, if you in fact had, a, you know, suppose there was an emergency where the government could use 1498 for a drug, which is not the case that people are talking about now, but suppose there was, the company could get full compensation. In other words, what's that drug worth on the market? That's not going to be cheap. So again, it's another thing, just like Bayh-Dole, where people have misused a statute that was actually intended to promote innovation and protect patent owners and turn it on its head for exactly the opposite purpose. And the other thing I think you'll find is the people that are advocating this are people who don't like the patent system and don't like Bayh-Dole. So, you know, these are not the people you really want to rely on to figure out how the law works. Um, under our system, if you don't like the way the statute works, rather than just making up a new meaning, you amend the statute or pass a new law. Well, they can't do that. So what they're trying to do is just say, we're just going to mis misread, misinterpret how the laws work. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the Red Queen and Alice in Wonderland. Words mean what I want them to mean, no more and no less. Uh, that's not how laws work. Now, if you ever get to a system like that, again, the bottom's going to drop out of our entrepreneurship because you can't depend on the rules anymore. The rules change depending on what the people in power want them to mean, not what they mean on paper. And again, um, once you do that, uh, you've, you've set a precedent there. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to restore confidence because once people have been cheated, it's like Charlie Brown on the football. Once you pull the football up once, it's hard to get people to keep going back, trying to pick, trying to kick it because they're afraid you're going to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe, I wanted to ask you, has capping of medication been tried before? Uh, not that I'm aware of. And <laughs> now again, capping medication costs is outside. You know, this whole thing about negotiating with Medicare is outside of my my domain. But um, if it has been done before, I'm really not aware of it. Yeah. Then if this hasn't really been successful before, then you know, or done before, why do you think legislators keep coming back to it? Well, you know, again on the on the on the Medicare thing, at least they did pass a law. And I, I think, again, a lot of people have a legitimate concern that, you know, you want to you want to reduce prices of medicine if, if possible. Uh, but at the same time, I think most of us have the same concern that you don't want to kill innovation. You know, we just talked about what happened with with developing COVID uh, uh, vaccines and therapies. So you're trying to get a, a, a middle balance there. Um, and, you know, what's going to happen with the Medicare negotiation? Uh, there's a lot of concern now that it actually is going to hurt innovation um, again, it's, it's a legitimate issue to look at how you can lower prices, how you can make things more affordable. But the issue I have is the Bayh-Dole statute is not the mechanism for doing that. That's not the purpose of Bayh-Dole. So if people want to address why drugs are costly, you should do that in another statute rather than trying to mess around with something that works and, and risk losing our innovation system, which, you know, the worst of all worlds is you have a, 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 a pandemic and, you, and no one's going to develop a therapy because you've destroyed the incentives to do so. <clears throat> so I think, we, you know, we need to be really careful what you jump into because something may sound good on a soundbite, but it may, in fact, not be very good policy. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joe, as the podcast comes to a close, what would you say we can do to help protect these provisions and prevent this abuse from occurring? I think, you know, especially after the election last week, which has, you know, got everybody uh, in a tailspin, the one thing I think we can agree on is the big issue facing this country, one of the biggest issues is the economy. 
And I think we need to explain to people who really don't know. There's, you know, there's a lot of people who really don't make anything. They don't know entrepreneurs. They have no idea how things are commercialized. We really need to explain to people that our system works. It's leading the world. It's driving our economy. And we need to make sure that we preserve that because the thing about us that's unique is we're actually driven by small companies. And those people take an enormous risk. And, and that's the reason we're ahead of China and other, other competitors is, you know, we have an entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial economy, which is based on risk and reward. So you have to be careful when you're hiding that risk that you're not going to stifle the very people that are actually driving us forward. And I think our opportunity is we need to explain that to people in plain English, no jargon. Uh, that's why you know, when the Buy Doll Coalition, when we, do, when we do a webinar, we only have people on there that actually have done this before and it can talk in plain English. Like if you listen to Judge Braden explain 1498, it's easy to understand what she's talking about. She doesn't get in the legal jargon. She's explaining exactly how the statute works and what it's supposed to do. And I think we just need to, we have to do that homework because while we've been around this issue a number of times, I have in particular, for a lot of people, it's brand new. They've never heard this before. And what they hear is the government's funding research and development. It's de-risking things. The company's just running out the back door with, with inventions they're making you know, a bazillion dollars on. That's not how our system operates. So we have an opportunity, but at the same time, you know, we, we really can't just assume people know stuff because until you explain it to them, this is a world that most people have really not, not wandered into. Yeah, this is such an important topic. And thank you, Joe, for such an insightful conversation and for bringing your expertise to the podcast today and continuing to be a source of knowledge on these really important topics in the tech transfer community. Well, listen, I always enjoy talking with you. And uh, I, I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing because podcasts like this are, are a great way of getting information out. So um, thank you for inviting me. And I really enjoy talking with you. Well, that's a wrap for this week's show. Catch you next time on the air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller, signing off for now. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.